Again, if we haven't met, my name's Colin. Uh, this is kind of a special moment for me. And the reason for that uh, is because the very first time I set foot on stage to do anything at Bridgetown Church was at a 10 a.m. gathering. And I got up to do announcements. And instead of giving announcements in a clear, collected fashion, my, my chest got really tight. And I started kind of <gasps> like breathing really, really hard. And then eventually did a really nervous cough into the mic. So. <laughs> Now, things are looking up from here, and <laughs> while that's a day that'll forever go down in infamy, I'm glad to be here. Uh, if you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 7. If you've been with us lately, you know we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, which is a biography of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and specifically we've been looking lately at the Sermon on the Mount, Ma Matthew 5 through 7, which is kind of Jesus' manifesto for what it looks like to live a life of discipleship to Him. Today we'll pick up in Matthew uh, 7, verses 13 through 14. I'll be reading from the ESV. It says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. A few months ago, I was just a few blocks from here uh, when a man screamed in my face that I was going to hell. He, he looked at me with anger in his eyes because in his mind, I was bound for destruction. And when we read a passage like this, uh, memories might come to mind, mental pictures might fill your mind, uh, perhaps a street corner preacher with an A-frame sign that says, turn or burn. Or you might even imagine a peaceful-looking highway stretching off into a fiery, doomy distance, while there might be just a meager path heading up a white mountain in the clouds. Whatever your experience is, whatever your mental picture is when we read this text, a passage like this brings up questions. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus nothing more than an exclusive fundamentalist? Is he just like the street corner preacher downtown? Is Jesus actually saying that very few people will enter into the kingdom of God while the bulk of humanity is destined for hell? Is God playing hard to get? And the list goes on. And the reality is that all of these questions are legitimate questions. There's no way around it. This is a hard text, which is why I'm so grateful to John Mark for giving it to me for my first time <laughs> at Bridgetown. Uh, however, if, if we look at the text more closely, I think we'll find that something different is going on here. Before we dive in, I want us just to focus on one word, uh, way. You, the Greek word for way is hados. Can you say that with me? Hados. Hados uh, occurs 845 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it can be translated as way or road or highway or path. And at the base level, a hados refers to a literal way or a road right beneath your feet. But if you read the scriptures, it's often used to paint a word picture. It, it refers to someone's entire way of life. So someone's patterns, their behavior, their way of thinking, their ethical system can all be summed up in their hados or their way. And if we run our fingers across the pages of the Bible, what we will find is that Jesus was not the first one to talk about there being two ways or two hados. 
Instead, he's picking up on an image that runs straight through the scriptures. So we're going to do a deep Old Testament dive. We're going to cover a lot of ground really quickly. Sound good? Ready. Beautiful. Uh, Think with me to Genesis chapter 1. God has created the heavens and the earth, light and darkness, waters and land, the birds and the animals. And then as the crown jewel of his creation, he creates humanity, male and female. And then Genesis 1, 28 through 29 says this, And God blessed them, that's humanity, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, have lots of babies, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then in chapter 2, it says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, or humanity, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So from the beginning, two ways to live were on offer. You can eat of every tree in the garden but one. You can have life with God, closeness with him, no shame between you and other other members of humanity. You can live or you can eat of the tree and the consequence will be death. And if you know the story, humanity chooses the second option. And in that moment, death entered the world. But notice, Adam and Eve don't immediately keel over dead. And in that moment, the ground doesn't open up and swallow them up into a dark, hot place. But in the mind of the biblical writers, death had still entered the world. Their good relationship with God and with each other dies under the weight of shame. And then if you know Genesis 3 through 5, those chapters are full of anger, jealousy, violence, polygamy, and pride. And ultimately, Adam and Eve do one day die. But notice, death was not only a future destination, but the present byproduct of their decisions. One way to think of it is that they were living in death. Put that away for later. And all of this was because, in the words of Genesis 6, all flesh had corrupted their way, their hadas. Yet, if you know the story, God is committed to restoring humanity back to the way of human flourishing. He calls Abraham and his family to follow him so that the plan was through Abraham and his family, he would restore blessing and goodness and wholeness to the world. How? Through a people following a way. And as Israel followed the way, the hadas of Yahweh, Yahweh would restore beauty and blessing and shalom and life to them and then to the world. But if you know the biblical story, time and time again, the people of Israel are faced with a choice between two ways. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives one big speech to the people of God before they enter into the promised land. And woven through this speech is an invitation to a way. Just one example is Deuteronomy 5.33. It says, You shall walk in all the way, the hadas, that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So chapters 1 through 29 of Deuteronomy are Moses laying out what it looks like for Israel to be the people of God. What does it look like for them to follow the way of Yahweh? And then at chapter 30, Moses turns a corner 
where he turns from teaching them the way of Yahweh to asking them to make a decision. Something is demanded of them. They must choose. In Deuteronomy 30, it says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Just use that next time you're in a fight. Uh, <laughs> that, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. So Moses has laid out his manifesto for how Israel was supposed to be the people of God, and all of it leads up to this decision point. What will you choose? There are two ways. You can walk in his ways, or you can turn aside. You can choose the way of life, or you can choose the way of death. You can choose the way of blessing or cursing. Therefore, the call is choose life. That's the call. Choose the way of Yahweh. And that refrain, that invitation to choose the way of Yahweh, shaped the people of Israel. It shaped the way they thought. It shaped the way that they lived, their art and their poetry, the Psalms and the Proverbs, and even the prophets. The prophet Isaiah described the people of Israel saying, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah anticipates, at the end of exile, he anticipates a coming him, or if you know the context, a coming servant of Yahweh. And this servant would take the brunt for all of our self-destructive ways. He would absorb the death that our ways have earned, and then he would lead us into the true way. He would be the embodiment of the way of Yahweh that would lead all of humanity into the true way. And then the book of Isaiah ends, and you're left with the question, so who is the servant? And then the New Testament begins, and we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth, a teacher who laid out his vision for life in the kingdom of God, and then likened the response of his followers to a choice between two ways. Are we all tracking? Good. Uh, Let's dive into the text a second time, Matthew 7, 13. Enter by or through the narrow gate. Let's pause there for a second. So, so far, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has laid out his vision for what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God, what it means to follow him. And then finally, at verse 13, Jesus begins an outro of sorts. He turns a corner from teaching into invitation. So for a listener who was listening to him or a reader like you and me, we've heard Jesus' vision for life in the kingdom of God. And now we're faced with the question of how we will respond. Think back again to Deuteronomy. Moses lays out his vision for what it looks like for the people of Israel to follow the way of Yahweh. And then at the end of the book, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Jesus is doing the same exact thing so that the would-be disciple can no longer keep the teachings of Jesus at arm's length like a theory or like a nice suggestion. Jesus is demanding that a decision has made of us. It's up close, it's personal, it's in your face, if you will. Something is required of us. And what does Jesus demand? Quote, enter through the narrow gate. So imagine with me in your mind that you're approaching an ancient city. The city would have large walls all around it that were for security, for protecting from enemies. And that at certain points along this wall, there would be gates. Gates for citizens and sojourners to go in and out of the city. These gates would vary in size. Some of them would be wide enough for a car or for a whole crowd to go through, while others would be small enough just for maybe one pedestrian 
one person with a cart or one guy with a camel. And typically speaking, the gate you would enter would determine the, the road that you would travel or the way that you would take. So David Garland puts it this way. He says, The saying assumes that the choice of gate will determine the state of the road. The imagery comes from the city and is surprising. If one is entering a city, a broad constructed road leads to the king's palace or somewhere very useful and can be safely traversed. If one is exiting a city, a precipitous path would lead through robber's territory. The broad way offers a more pleasant excursion and avoids danger. The passage for followers of Christ, if they choose the right gate, will be a tight squeeze and lined with suffering. Thank you, David Garland. <laughs> so the gate that you enter sets the trajectory for where you travel. Jesus' call to enter through the narrow gate is a call to make a decision about our way, about what we will do, and ultimately about who we will become. In other words, it's a call to make a decision about how we will respond to Jesus. Will you call Jesus Lord? Will he be the king of your life and no one else? Or in his words, will you follow me? That's the invitation and that's the call. And such a decision is not a one and done, go to heaven when you die fast pass, but it was a decision that leads to a way. It was a gate you would enter that would enter into a whole way to live. But why the narrow gate? Let's look down again. Enter by or through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. First, I want us to notice just the overall structure of this passage. First, you have enter, which is a command, an imperative. And then for or because, and this structure, it's do this for this reason. And that tips us off that this passage is a warning. Secondly, notice the duality. In this passage, we have two opposite gates that lead to two opposite ways and two opposite destinations with two opposite groups. Two, two, two. And Jesus isn't using this two language because he's unintelligent or because he's reductionistic or because he needs to go to yoga and discover that there are many ways to live. <laughs> Jesus is doing this because he's a good teacher. He uses the two roads or the two ways as a rhetorical device, and he's simplifying all of our life decisions down to two so that we can feel the weight of the decision that's at hand. Jesus wants you to be shocked. He wants you to be surprised, to be challenged, to maybe even be uncomfortable, to be moved to make a decision. Finally, you have four word pairings that you need to notice. Wide and narrow, easy and hard, destruction and life, and many and few. And we're going to work through the rest of this passage by looking at each of those four pairings. Let's begin with wide and narrow. So reimagine again the city. It's in your, it's in your mind. A wide gate is a gate that anything could get through, a car, a crowd. A wide gate is a gate in which anything goes. You don't have to change course. You don't need to pivot or shimmy your way through the wide gate. Uh, in fact, you don't need to leave anything behind to enter through it. The wide gate is the default gate. It's the gate you naturally go through. And to enter this gate and ultimately follow the way it leads on, you don't have to change a thing. Come on Sundays, hear the teachings of Jesus, do nothing about it. That is the wide gate. 
The wide gate is the gate of you do you, boo-boo. You do what feels good. You do what you want. That's, that's the wide gate. Uh, I heard that to preach here, you have to quote Dallas Willard. So Dallas Willard says, the broad gate is simply doing whatever I want to do. Meanwhile, to enter the narrow gate, to call Jesus Lord, is to change course. It's to break your default way of doing things, to enter through the unexpected gate. And in fact, in pursuing the wide gate, you might pass the narrow gate by. And if you're going to follow Jesus, to enter through his gate and ultimately practice his way, you will likely have to leave something behind. Something will have to change. Dale Bruner writes this. He says, The life of discipleship passes by day by day through the narrow gate of decision to make Jesus one sole Lord and so to walk the decidedly uneasy road of obeying his commands. Which leads us to the next set of adjectives, easy and hard. Now you might notice some translation differences here. Um, NIV has a broad way and a narrow way, while the ESV, which is what I'm reading, has the easy way and the hard way. In my estimation, uh, both of these translations are fair, broad and narrow, easy and hard. However, I do think easy and hard is a slightly better translation of the two words that we have at hand. Regardless, to level the playing field, is a narrow way hard to walk on? Yes. And by contrast, is a broad way easy to walk on? Yes. So regardless of how you translate it, the idea of ease and difficulty are both at work here. So what is the easy way? The easy way is life uninterrupted. And it's, it's appealing because no effort is required to live this way. To make decisions for yourself and ultimately to not follow Jesus is the easier way. Just wake up in the morning, go to brunch at jam, and proceed as usual. Float down the lazy river of life. The easy way is the Portland way, the path of least resistance. Um, I read one scholar who, who really rejected the translation hard, or hard way, um, because he didn't like the idea of saying that following Jesus is hard. And while I kind of get the sentiment, uh, I honestly wondered how. Because even in my short life, following Jesus has proven difficult. And what I've found is that following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. And the reality is that easy things are rarely good, and good things are rarely easy. All good things, whether a career or a marriage or raising kids or contributing good to the world, take hard work. And following Jesus is no different. Uh, Jesus isn't even shy about this. He invites us to follow him on the hard way. He likens following him to picking up a cross, to death itself. Yet the hope for the follower of Jesus is that on the other side of death lies resurrection. Which leads us to the doozy destruction and life. Are you guys hanging in there? Great. The word translated destruction is apalia. It's a pretty general term that mean, can mean destruction or ruin or even waste. And it implies the idea of something being destroyed and in doing so forfeiting the purpose for which it was made. It's ruined. It's wasted. It's not valid. It's destroyed. It ceased to be what it was. It's apalia. 
And when we follow the wide, easy way, when we do what comes naturally, we don't change, we don't enter the narrow gate, we don't follow Jesus, we don't make that decision to live his way, the reality is that we forfeit our humanity. We destroy ourselves and wreak havoc on everyone around us, and our life could be described as wasted. On the other hand, life, or entering into life, as, as it's put later in the sermon, is a term that is functionally interchangeable with the kingdom of heaven, or to be saved. So in Matthew's gospel, life, kingdom, salvation, these are all interchangeable words in Matthew's mind. So Jesus is saying, follow me, live out my way, and the result will be life in the kingdom of God. That despite the facade of the broad way, you'll experience true life when you follow me. Life as it's supposed to be. Now what's interesting about both of these terms is that they have a present and a future reality to them. Uh, or if you've heard the language of now and not yet. On the one hand, think back to Genesis with me. Uh, the death that entered the world meant that Adam and Eve would one day literally die. But in the present, they also experienced death. Shame and separation and violence and anger, all of that can be fit into the junk drawer term of death. And death was not just then a future state for them, but the present byproduct of going their own way. John Stott captures this well and describes the pain and heartbreak of all of this when he says this, Jesus taught that the easy way entered through the wide gate leads to destruction. He did not define what he meant by this, meaning he just said destruction and didn't spell it out. But the terrible word destruction, terrible because God is properly the creator and not the destroyer, and because man was created to live and not to die, seems to give us the liberty to say that everything good will be destroyed. Love and loveliness, beauty and truth, joy, peace, and hope, and that forever. It is a prospect too awful to contemplate without tears. For the broad road is the suicide road. And in a similar manner, though in an opposite direction, life in the kingdom of God is a now and a not yet. Jesus, the good news that Jesus preached was that the kingdom of God was at hand or was in our grasp. In the Gospel of John, he says, anyone who believes in me has, present tense, eternal life. So that the good news of Jesus is not about going to a good place up in the clouds when you die. When we follow Jesus now, we get a taste of life to the full in the present, but we anticipate the coming day when God makes all things new. That we get to live life in the kingdom now, but we look forward to the coming day when God reigns forever, death will be no more, and he wipes every tear from our eyes. That is the now and the not yet. And that is Jesus' desire for us that we would enter into the life he has on offer, enter through the narrow gate, take the hard way, because it actually leads to life, now and to come. It is the better way to live. So we have wide and narrow, easy and hard, destruction and life. And finally, we should address the many and the few. So let me begin with what I don't think Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is simply saying that few people will enter into the kingdom of God. The same word for many is used later in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus says, many will come from east and west to enter the kingdom of God. 
And then later in the same gospel, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So that when we read this text, we have to remember that this is the same Jesus who declares the least likely people to be blessed. This is the same Jesus who invites his followers to love their enemies. This is the same Jesus who advocates for the poor. And it's the same Jesus who ultimately sends his disciples to every nation. So that at the center of the heart of God is a God who aches that none would perish and is instead inviting all into life, all to enter through the narrow gate, all to experience life to the full. All can come and follow Jesus. That is the heart of God. Yet, what Jesus is saying is that to follow him is to be in the moral minority. That when you follow Jesus, you should not expect to look around and see a lot of other people following him as well. Further, it seems that Jesus believes that his way to follow him, him alone, is the only way to life. How exactly those parts all work together, the many and the few, we, we don't fully know. And the reality is that there is a tension here. And like a father who raises his voice as his child runs into the street, Jesus uses strong language not because he's angry with us, but because he loves us. He loves you too much to watch you walk down the same patterns of behavior that brought destruction on your parents and are bringing destruction on you. He loves you too much to watch you destroy your life. He loves you too much to see you miss out on life to the full by following the easy way. Further, Jesus is inviting us to see that what you do actually matters. That right now in the present, you can live in such a way so as to experience life and to anticipate more life in the future. Or you can live in such a way as where you're currently experiencing destruction and there will be more destruction in the future. And if we're going to follow Jesus, what we have to recognize is that the way of Portland and the way of Jesus are not one and the same. The way, of, the way of Portland urges you to follow your heart. Be the king or queen of your own life. To have the kingdom without the king. In contrast, the way of Jesus invites us to trust him as our good king and to follow him. The Beatitudes of Portland might read, Blessed are the individualists, the strong-headed, and those who numb the pain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for lardo and IPA, for they will be filled. But the way of Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The way of Portland is the way of theological deconstruction, critique, question, challenge, be skeptical, doubt, be your own arbiter of truth, adopt a posture of skepticism so that no one can tell you what's true. No one can put a pattern over you, and you can be the one who is the master of your own life and the captain of your own fate. That's the way of Portland, doubt. The way of Jesus instead invites us to construct our lives or to build them around the scriptures, to trust the scriptures because we trust the character of God, to follow the scriptures because we follow Jesus who had an off-the-charts high view of the Bible. The way of Portland urges us saying, get angry. As long as you're mad at the right person, be angry with the bigot. Be angry with the left wing of the right wing nut job. Be angry with the powers that be. That is your right. 
And then Jesus challenges us to lay aside anger and to reconcile. Not even to think ill or speak ill of someone, much less be angry with them. To take the hard road of reconciliation. The way of Portland urges you to indulge all of your sexual desires. Your sexuality is central to your identity, and any restriction of your desires is slavery. And then the way of Jesus urges us to honor God and honor others with our body and with our minds. To have an incredibly high, not a low, but a high view of what it means to be human so that your sexuality does not master you. You are more than your sexuality. The way of Portland says, marry people when they make you happy and divorce them when they don't. Uh, Jesus invites us to commit your whole life faithfully to another person, to love them more than you love your happiness, to actually love them when they seem to not make you happy. In Portland, we're taught to use words to get ahead, to manipulate, to pull things into your favor. And the way of Jesus urges us to use, truth, uh, use words to be truthful. And finally, the prayer of Portland is, my kingdom come, my will be done. And the prayer of Jesus is, your kingdom come, your will be done. And on we could go. They are two different ways. The way of Portland and the way of Jesus. And if we're not careful, we can blur them together. And the reality is they are not one and the same. We cannot mix them up. They are two ways. The way of Portland is hands down the easier way. Being king or queen of your own life is easy. Indulging yourself in whatever feels good is easy. Anger is easy. Lust is easy. But all of them will hollow out your soul and rob you of your humanity and ultimately cost you life to the full. Meanwhile, the way of Jesus is hard. Discipleship to Jesus is hard. Restraint is hard. Kindness and enemy love are hard. And anyone who's married will tell you that marital faithfulness is hard. But all of those things are worth it. And they lead to life. The hard way leads to life. And the reason I beat this drum so hard is because if we're not careful, we can be quietly and slowly drawn and sucked into the easy way of our city. It's easy for a reason. And because if I'm honest, it's all too easy. Uh, if you don't know much about me, I grew up in Southern California, and I'm married to my darling wife, Maddie, who just led worship a few moments ago. Uh, and we moved to Portland about three years ago. And part, part of what was exciting about moving to Portland was thinking about this idea of seeing the city changed, or as is the mantra of Bridgetown, to see the kingdom come in Portland as it is in heaven. But what we didn't quite bargain for was that the way that the city of Portland would change us. That quickly I found that instead of me teaching Portland the way of Jesus, I was about to be taught the way of Portland. And in some ways for the good, I learned to recycle. Um, I talk about the weather now more than ever before. I will patiently wait two hours for brunch, and I kind of enjoy tempeh, so that's a thing. Uh, but at the same time, the last couple years have personally been filled with more doubt and more skepticism and more wrestling than any of the previous years of my life, and they've actually been really hard. Uh, doubt about God, doubt about the scriptures, whether I can trust them, whether they're true, uh, all of that. And that's, that's for a lot of reasons, not all bad. Uh, that's because doubt is not actually the problem. 
but what you do with doubt matters. Uh, And for me, it's been all too easy to let doubt slide into deconstruction, to in my mind, in my heart, put God on trial and to stand over him as a judge, to really pick the Bible apart with my mind, to challenge it, to critique it, to question whether or not it's true or good, and in reality, to stand from a distance and hurl my mental darts at God and at the scriptures and at the way of Jesus. And in so doing, to spiral and spiral into doubt and deconstruction. And in one sense, that is the easier way. It will always be easier to tear down than it is to build up. Uh, And it will always be easier to doubt than it will be to believe. But it hollows out your soul. So as I come to this teaching, I feel this deep, just for me personally, this deep call to trust Jesus again. That for me right now, to take the hard way is to push past doubt and wrestling and deconstruction and to move instead into reconstructing my life around the teachings of Jesus. To trust his character, to trust his goodness, to trust the scriptures, and ultimately to be a disciple of Jesus. Because like I said, Jesus had a high view of the Bible. So if I'm actually going to follow him, I have to follow him there too. For me, I want to take the posture of a learning disciple rather than a judge over Jesus. And the invitation uh, of Jesus for you could be similar or it could be different. Jesus could be challenging your approach to your money or your sexuality or your individualism or anger and on the list could go. It could be that Jesus is calling you to follow him for the first time, to, to make that first decision to enter through the narrow gate follow Jesus and experience true life. Maybe you've been in and out of church, you've come on Sundays, and Jesus is inviting you to no longer just treat his teachings like a cute idea. Instead, he's begging you, follow me. Follow me. Have life to the full. And I imagine a lot of us, uh, a lot of us might just be overwhelmed right now. Life is hard, and I don't need to tell you that following Jesus is hard. And you might have come here tonight hoping, oh, I'm just really hoping for an uplifting sermon from John Mark Comer. And you got me, and you got this. Uh, and I want you to hear, if you're in that place, that Jesus is with you on the hard road. He's with you. Then the Gospel, Gospel of Matthew opens that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then it ends with, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with you. You can take the hard road because Jesus is with you and he's gone before you. In fact, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again so you could have life. You no longer have to pursue ways that lead to death, that your past does not define you. You do not need to keep going down those destructive ways. He's overcome them. He's paid the full cost so that you can stop pursuing that way and live his way and thus have life to the full. Because Jesus is alive, you can change. Because Jesus is alive, you can take on a new way. Because Jesus is alive, you can have life to the full. He left the grave behind him, and so will you, as we just sang. Part of what I love about this passage is that Jesus doesn't seem to care how long you've been on the easy road. Whether you've just taken a few steps on it, and you're just a a passing thought, just one decision, 
or whether most of your life has consisted to the easy road. It's like the gate has followed you everywhere you can go. And no matter how many miles you've put on the road, Jesus says, enter, follow me, have life. That the offer stands for you. Experience forgiveness. Experience life to the full. You are not too far gone. Jesus died for that. So wherever you're at in following Jesus, I think the call for us, whether you've wandered just a little bit or you've wandered a lot, the call for us is again is to enter the narrow gate, to, decla- to declare with our lives that he is Lord, and then to keep following Jesus, to trust that life is ahead for you, that to follow him leads to life, that he's with you, that you can actually get through the hard way because he went before you. The call for us is to enter the narrow gate and take the hard way because it leads to life. Let's stand and pray.